Then the priest Ezra blessed the Lord, the great God, and all the people answered together, Amen, Amen, lifting up their hands. And then they bowed their heads and worshipped the Lord with their faces to the ground. Would you all please bow your heads and pray with me? May the words of my mouth and the meditations of all of our hearts be acceptable in thy sight, O Lord, our rock and our redeemer. Amen. One of the blessings and one of the curses of being a pastor is that you pay particularly close attention when you experience worship in another church that is not your own. So if any of you were to go to another church on a Sunday morning, let's say you were on vacation or you were mad about what I said last week and you wanted to try another church, you might notice that there's a different wording to a hymn you love. Or you might notice that one of the words in the Apostles' Creed has been changed. Or you might sit through a really boring sermon thinking the whole time, God, we had it so good with Taylor. Maybe we should go back to Cokesbury next week. But for me, for me, it's really hard to pay, atta- pay attention to what's happening in another worship service because all I'm thinking about is, why is this happening? It's hard for me to appreciate what's happening because all I can think about is, why is this happening in the first place? And so on a Sunday morning, I was sitting in a very large cathedral. It's a giant structure for worship. And I arrived thinking it was going to be somewhat like the churches I was familiar with. I mean, this place was imposing. It had this huge, gothic, vaulted ceilings, more stained glass windows than you could count everywhere. It was very cold. It was very quiet. And no one smiled at anyone else. And so I I sat in my pew, and I went through the motions of worship. I stood up when people were singing. I sat down, and... Uh, when the first scripture was read, I got kind of bored, and so I started looking out at one of the stained glass windows, because there was this strange thing, this strange dynamic of the sound. The cathedral was so large, it was so long, they had to have an echo device. The pastor who was preaching had to train him or herself to not speak too quickly, or they would encroach on their words as it bounced off the walls. So the sermon sounded like this, as they waited, and sounded like William Shatner or someone else. And, you know, this service went on for a long time, and I was sort of faintly listening to the scripture, and then all of a sudden, inexplicably, everyone in the sanctuary stood up. Inexplicably, everyone in the sanctuary stood up. This is your cue. Everyone (laughs) stood up. Now, mind you, there was no announcement. There was no Pastor Taylor doing this. There was not even an asterisk in the bulletin. And so I'm standing there, and I'm trying to figure out why in the world we're all standing up. And this tiny little girl came down from the altar, carrying a Bible I thought that would crush her to death. And she walked solemnly into the center of the sanctuary, and everyone turned to face her as she walked to the middle of the sanctuary. And then she froze and turned around lifted the Bible above her head and went down on one knee. And then the pastor came out of the pulpit. And like a slug, he made his way all the way down the 3,000 feet to the middle of the sanctuary. He opened up the book to the gospel and he read the gospel text out loud. And at the end, he said, this is the word of God for the people of God. And everyone said, thanks be to God. And then slowly, like a death march, They made their way to the front, and everyone's eyes followed the Bible. 
slowly marched up. It was taken and dropped on the altar. And then everyone sat down. And I'm sitting there thinking, what just happened? No one told me what to do. I stood out like a sore thumb. I kept looking up at the front. Everybody else is looking behind me. And only after the service was over, because this is the kind of person I am, I went up to the pastor and I said, hey, you've got to explain this to me. What in the world are you doing? He said, oh, young one, in this church, we read the gospel from the heart of God's people. In our church, we read the gospel from the heart of God's people. Another service, it was an evening service, and what could not be the more opposite church than that cathedral was this tiny little chapel. Filled to the brim. I was so grateful because when I walked in, they handed me a fan. And I thought, oh, I'm not going to need this. And then I thought I was going to die. It was the (laughs) hottest room I've ever been in in my life. There was not an empty spot in any pew, and I was the only white person in the room. And I was fanning myself like it was going out of style. It was a traditionally black church. And the the worship was incredible. I mean, some of the best singing I've ever heard. And the preacher, the only way to describe him was that he was on fire. It was like everything he said, he had this direct line to God and those really powerful voices. You know what I'm talking about? And it was just like, every time he said something, it knocked over half the church. <laughs> and he was so good, and everyone was so insane, he would reference a, a hymn. And while he said the words from the hymn, the pianist would just start playing over at the side, and everyone would start singing, and we'd belt out this song until he put his hand up, because then he remembered the rest of the sermon he wanted to tell. <laughs> I mean, it was, it was like an experience I'd never had before. At one point in the middle of the sermon, he said something like, If Jesus is not the Lord of all, then he is not the Lord at all. And the woman sitting next to me shot up like a lightning bolt from her pew, and she said, Preacher, say that again. (laughs) And he said, If Jesus is not the Lord of all, then he is not the Lord at all. And she said, One more time, Preacher. If Jesus is not the Lord of all, then he is not the Lord at all. Two completely different experiences of church. From the cold and the stark stone walls of a cathedral to the burning fire of a small chapel. Worship. Worship. In the Bible, there's all sorts of things. There's laws. There's sermons, there's precepts, there's genealogies, there are even rules about how you're supposed to worship, but very, very rarely do we ever get a story about how people worship in the first place. Because how people worship, it's important, we should focus on it, but it's not nearly as important as the one whom we worship. So in this Bible, we hear the story about God's people. What had happened after they had been in captivity in Babylon. They're all gathered together. All is used intentionally. Eight times in this small passage, all of the people, men and women and children, they're all gathered together to hear the scriptures. These are people who have been gone from the promised land for an entire generation. Most of them had never even known what this promised land was supposed to look like. They might have heard about Moses. They might have heard about David. But this was the first time they were at home. To hear about the home that God had promised to them. And all of them were there to hear it. And the scope is even bigger than just the people who were in that area that day. Because it ends with Ezra telling everyone to go. 
to eat the fat and drink the wine and share your joy with everyone you encounter. The allness of this is remarkable. And it speaks, I think, a rather countercultural word to us today because for us, everything today is about the individual. It's all about me. It's all about my relationship with Jesus. But that's not what happens in this text. In this text, it's not about any individual. It's about everyone being together. As someone once said, there are a great number of things we can do on our own, but being a Christian is not one of them. There are a great number of things we can do on our own, but being a Christian is not one of them. We might call what we're doing right now, this is the liturgy. It is, it's what we do on Sundays. Uh, but the word liturgy, it comes from the word liturgia, and it means the work of the people. It's not just what happens in this room on Sundays. It is what we do when we worship. The problem is, if what we do here feels like work, then we're doing something wrong. It should not feel like work. Liturgy is supposed to be like the play of a child. And the play of an adult, but I don't really know any adults who know how to play well. It's supposed to be playful. It's supposed to be exciting and engrossing and transformative. And it's not even really supposed to have a purpose, but by doing it, we are transformed. You fall into something and you lose yourself in it. That's what play is. And that's what worship is supposed to be like. Because without play, we cease to be the beautiful creatures that God has called us to be. Without play, worship becomes just another notch on that endless list of things we're supposed to do as Christians. Without play, everything we do in this room, it rings out like a hollow gong or a clanging cymbal. Worship, at its best, is a reflection of the playful dance that takes place within the Trinity and within all of us. So we ask ourselves, how are we supposed to worship? We can copy the people of Nehemiah and Ezra's day. We could fill this Space with as many people as possible. We could stand together in solidarity when the book is open. We could bow our heads to the floor and worship God with our faces down by the carpet. We could get someone like me to interpret all the words so that all of you peons would understand what God is trying to say. And then we could send everybody home with the charge to eat the fat and drink the wine and share with everybody else. But you want to know something? It's already what we do. It's what we do every week. We do it in different ways, subtle ways. Some things we emphasize, some things we de-emphasize. Every church does it differently. In that Episcopal church that I was in, that giant cathedral, everyone stood with attention and with silence and respect while the Bible was marched into the middle of the sanctuary because that's how they affirmed that it was true. That there was a truth in the Word of God. It was their way of physically embodying the recognition that this was something holy. The priest would make the sign of the cross on his forehead, on his lips, and on his heart before he read the word. It was a way for him to say, this is the most powerful thing that God has ever given to us. In the black church, it's common to see members stand up when the preacher says something that rings true with the people who are there. It's part of the call and response heritage of the black church. You're likely to hear the, mm-hmm, or say that, preacher, or amen, or say that again. Because that's the way they affirm that they've heard something that's true. In many ways, whether we're in that cathedral or in that small chapel or we're in Cokesbury Church on Sunday morning, what we do is the contemporary equivalent of standing when we hear the word or lying on the ground when we hear what the priest has to say. Because it's all about God. God is not just the object of our worship. God is also the subject of our worship, the holiness the power and the grace and the mercy of God. 
who encounters us as we encounter him. And so to me, it's kind of strange to read a passage like this one that Bob read for us and to see how far we've moved in our own worship. I mean, we still prioritize the reading of the word, but in some churches, I know you all don't know what this is like, but in some churches, it's so boring, it feels like it might kill someone rather than give them life. In some churches, people are wearing perfect suits and long dresses, which is crazy because we should be wearing hard hats. We should be carrying around first aid kits. The God of Israel is here with us, and we never know what he's going to do with us. He might shake the foundation under our feet. He might take the roof off. We never know quite what God's going to do with us. The least we could do is be prepared. When something is true, whether it's inside the church or out, it grabs a hold of us and it refuses to let go. I could regale you with story after story, things I've heard over the years of being a pastor about people whose lives have been radically, and I mean that literally, have been radically transformed because of the truth they've encountered in Jesus Christ. Like the racist woman who fell out of her pew in repentant tears when she heard about Jesus' interaction with the woman at the well. Like the adulterous husband who stood up in the middle of a hymn and begged for God to forgive him and for the courage to admit what he had done. Like for the young adult who rejoiced when she heard the liturgist read those words from Genesis, let us go create them in our image. And she felt peace about her identity for the very first time. I could go on and on and on with story after story after story. The truth. It can hit us like a ton of bricks falling from the ceiling. It can hit us like a gentle breeze through a window. It can happen in a finite moment or it can take an entire lifetime. But when the truth of God grabs hold of us, it refuses to let go. One of the things that's right with the church is that God's word in the midst of a community like this can change and transform our lives better than anything else. Scripture and song and prayer done in a community gives us the lens by which we can look at ourselves and look at one another through God's eyes. Being the church together, it's about showing up and being prepared for the unpredictable movements of the Spirit who shakes the floor and takes off the roof. Being the church, at the very least, should be fun. It should be fun. In this passage, we read that after the people had worshipped together, they are sent out with merriment. They are told to eat the fat and drink the wine. Life in God should produce a gladness bubbling up in our hearts, particularly when we gather together with such a beautiful group of people week after week after week. This is the day that the Lord has made. We are here to rejoice, to be glad, not to be grieved, not to be mournful, but to have joy in our hearts and our souls, to drink the wine and eat the fat, to dance. This is not the day for tears. This is the day for joy, because the joy of the Lord is our strength. And when we get together, we have fun. So I offer this to you in the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit, one God now and forever. Amen. Amen.